Hello, and welcome to Profit's Healthcare Changemakers podcast, where we'll be talking to leaders in healthcare who are focused on transforming their organizations to drive the next level of growth for their business and for healthcare. At Profit, we believe that the organizations that thrive in healthcare are those that dare to change the game, striving to improve human health, create better experiences, and make the best of care an enduring and sustainable reality for all. Those that will transform healthcare are the changemakers. And for this podcast, we want to focus on them. Our podcast dials into and recognizes the people behind the transformation and their journeys in changing the game one story at a time. Are you ready to dive in? Hi, I'm Paul Shrimp, your host for today, and I am joined by Ben Andrew, VP of Strategy at Intuitive. Ben, welcome. Good to be here, Paul. Let's dive right in. Ben, love to have you share a little bit about yourself and what people should know about you. Yeah, I've been with Intuitive Surgical for about six years and currently VP of Corporate Strategy and came to Intuitive from William Blair, where I was 19 years as a sell-side equity research analyst covering the medtech space, and had done that as well as a little investment banking early in my career for a total of 25 years. Uh, chemist by training, uh, got a degree in English and an MBA, so kind of like the idea of being a, a rounded person, and found a couple of different industries that hopefully leverage some of those capabilities. Awesome. And beyond kind of uh, where you've gone to school and where you've collected your paycheck, like, what are some of the things that you think have shaped who you are as your uh, professional role today? Uh, I mean, it's funny when you say, what is your identity? One of my identities is I'm a woodworker and I've always loved building things. And kind of one of the characteristics of the way that I build things is I don't use blueprints. I, look, hmm. I start I just start with raw materials, start fitting things together, uh, adjust along on the fly. One of the arts of woodworking is covering up and uh, fixing mistakes. You always know they're there. They're, every project I've ever made has mistakes, defects in it that I've found creative ways to conceal, but they're always there. And so it's just a it's sort of a little bit of a life lesson for me and has always been part of me. It started out from my Scottish genes, hmm. English and Scottish genes. My family back in the day was building round barns in the middle of the 19th century in hmm. central Indiana. And if you know anything about English people, they favor a dollar. And so... Hmm. Turns out that a round barn is the most efficient structure that you can build with the least amount of wood. And mm. so that's why they did it. And they did it all over the Midwest. And there's a number of other tradespeople that did it. So I've, I've got some weird building gene in my head that allows me to think the way I do. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'd love to, pardon the fun, build from there. Um, but a, a lot of these conversations that we curate on uh, Healthcare Changemakers revolves around this concept of transformation, which is a term that has become known as everything and nothing at the same time. But I'd love to pause and just say, when people are talking about transformation or when it comes up in your conversations, how do you make sure they're talking about the right things? How do you define it? What might be some misnomers that we have around this space of transformation or driving growth and impact in healthcare? And one of the most important things when you're having a conversation, whether it's about strategy or frankly anything, is that when somebody says a word, everybody agrees what that word means. Mm -hmm. Taxonomy, nomenclature matter. And so we align you know, carefully on such. And so when you say transformation, like you say, let people hear different words. When people say digital, they hear different things. And so yeah. when I hear transformation, the first thing that pops into my head is, is really change management. Yep. Identifying where I am to where I want to go, that's transformation. But to me, it is the pathway and the steps that you take to get there. And I think the reason that most transformations fail 
if I had to guess, I'd say 25% of them fail because the strategy was bad. Yeah. 75% of them fail because the execution of the change management was bad. Yeah. And why do you think that is? That's a harder question to answer yeah. because it's really situational. And the first thing I learned as a research analyst back in 1991, two, three, whatever it was, yeah. was like real estate, when you're evaluating a company, it's management, management, management. Yep. It's that you can have a, a strong management team and a, an average strategy and they will find a way to make it a success and vice versa. It's usually that people underestimate the magnitude of the interruption or the, mm -hmm. the decline in effectiveness and productivity and every other metric of output that you must accept as you go through a transformation. And that's yep. the change management piece. Yep. And I've had human factors as people explain to me this cavern that you have to, if you're going along at level X, you're going to go drop down to something X minus a very large number for some period of time while you go through that change management. Right. Then you're going to dig your way out of it as the things that you implement start to pull you back to where you think you were going to go in the first place before yep. you even get back to even. And then yep. if you keep executing well, you'll go to X plus something. But that window, depending upon the complexity of the ecosystem or the of the change that you're making is it's usually not a day it's you know six months right. 12 months 24 months and i think a lot yeah. of times people either don't have the resources the right talent in position or perhaps the right strategy to pull them all the way through that process to achieve it and so many times there's institutional resistance right and we see this a lot in hospitals where uh, folks will revert back to old habits as you try to help them figure things out they have every great they have every intention of mm -hmm. learning and performing at a higher level but you get staff turnover or something changes and they just revert to type so you're fighting this tide if you will of momentum right. that, that that change management process describes that i think people tend to underestimate some of those other factors i see that a lot because i think that's where a lot of things break down is what I'll call the body of the organization. Like whether you're on the investor side or the consulting side like me or the senior leadership side, those cohorts of professionals want to grow. They want to disrupt. We self-select into, we want to do something cool. And I think when we get into the bodies of the organizations, you mentioned health systems, which I think is a, is a great stereotype here. They don't want change. They want to resist it. You know, I, we'll, I'll go through a transformation and, you know, we'll talk to managers and below going, I didn't come here for this job and I've got three jobs since I've taken it and none of them are the jobs I wanted. And I think we can't really underestimate like the importance of change and where you are going is almost there's a high degree of resistance of change in some organization, which makes it exponentially harder to execute, even though the belief at the top is there and the appetite for the change at the top is there, the bottom, it's a different game. Yeah. And, and when I said resistance, it's not that they're actively pushing back against you, mm -hmm. but it's just, there's this momentum. I got to get my other stuff done. I got my day job and now you want me to take all this other stuff. And so back to my, this little cavern that you create, yeah. you, just, you visualize this gap where yeah. you're going to get worse at everything for a while. And that's yeah. really hard for people because they've got lives and they've got commitments. And, and like I said, the other big yeah. one is turnover. Think about it. You put somebody through a two week long tr training program and then six months later they leave. Yeah. And I think the other bias that I don't know if you've seen this as well in the device and equipment space is they'll use words like transformation and they'll have growth strategies, but it tends to still be wrapped around increasing the success of the core business, which to me, I don't know if that's the right answer. I'm not sure where my opinion is on that, but oh, if we do these other services, it'll help drive the core business. And to me, that's just still propping up a legacy business, but using different language 
But normally when I see transformation, like, oh, we're going to embrace an, a new business model. We're going to chase revenue streams in a different way. But many times it's like, oh, we make a widget. And if we do these other things, that ensures our ability to charge a price premium for that widget. And then we call it transformation. And, and I would have a disagreement with that philosophy of calling it that. It may not be a yeah. bad strategy, but it's not transformation. No, I don't view that as a transformation. You yeah. A new product, um, a new business model. Those are important evolutions of your strategy. But for me, a transformation goes deeper than that. Yeah. And when you're structurally changing your relationship with your customer or how the customer executes what they need to do, yeah. that's a more more dramatic form of transformation. Or you as a company, I'm going to completely change my go-to-market approach. Yeah. I'm going to go from selling things to having a SaaS model. You've got to turn a lot of turn a lot of screws to make that happen. Yeah. And the entire organization has to be bought into something like that in order for it to stick. Yeah. But in another way to look at transformation is the when you think about innovation, a lot of companies will start up a new business line in an attempt to reaccelerate growth or sustain yeah. longer term growth. And you get into this discussion about, okay, fine, I've got this existing line of business that's 99% of my revenues, and now I've got this little baby over here that is consuming resources, losing money, yeah. it's got a lot of potential. And this is why you put things in incubators. This is why you wall them off, because yeah. when that big organization gets stressed, the first thing it does is start grabbing at resources. Yeah. And they, the first place they go is the money losing incubated business. So if it's not, it's not sufficiently walled off, right. they'll eat the young. <laughs> and so it's just, it just it, you see it, right? And you don't normally see it for innovative companies, but when companies right. really get their back up against the wall, that's where they go. Those are good points. But you mentioned one aspect, which is keeping that team a little bit separate, almost run as its own organization out to the side. But then you're then suggesting an appetite for a different risk, which is integrating that in the organization. So like, what's the safer or better way of cultivating a new platform, a new business? Do we bring it inside? Do we acquire acquisitions or have high failure rates? But thoughts and opinions on, on, on when to do it internally, when to ex incubate it externally, or when just to acquire it, and what do we need to be thinking about in those moves? It's very situational based upon your starting point as a company or as, a, as yeah. an entity, but the rule of thumb for if you're incubating it in-house, and I think most innovative companies believe that they can do such things themselves, yeah. and I, I think that should be your number one priority is to do it yourself if you can, but if you can't, then obviously you're going to go outside. But if you're doing it yourself and you're incubating it, the rule of thumb is you don't integrate it into the core business until it's at least 10% of revenues. Okay. And if you've done your job in the incubation process and in the design process, that thing will be growing faster than the core. Yep. And so then the organization will start to be supportive of it because of its contribution. And by the time it's 10% of revenues of a decently sized company, it's probably yep. contributing something close to corporate margins. And so it's going to look good on paper. So it won't be as vulnerable to being attacked by the mothership. And so I think it's, that's it just, that's a rule of thumb in terms of prioritization. It, it depends on your, what your capabilities are as an organization. And yep. intuitive as an example is a very innovative company. And so we tend to do things ourselves, but we do look mm -hmm. around and everybody, all of the leading med tech companies are constantly surveying the landscape, looking for that next large market, that next adjacent technology pillar yeah. or technology area where they can 
bring additional expertise of their own to take a product all the way through. And like I said, I'm, it's there's it really is situational. I think a straight up acquisition of a sizable business is to me the last choice. Yeah. And then I'd love to continue to kind of be zoomed out here in, I don't even want to list the number of companies you've had some sort of vested interest in over the years, but would love to go back in time 15, 20, 25 years ago. Is there anything you'd go back and tell yourself to think about differently or look for different things that, that you've learned? Yeah. The, the people that I work with know that I'm full of a lot of things, including cliches and, mm-hmm. and little slogans. But, yeah. um, you know, for me, one of the most important things is uh, finding the strongest trend or wave or, yeah. frankly, tsunami that is happening in the industry yeah. and the biggest wave. And yeah. then foundationally, you want to find the very best surfboard you can. You want to get on that board and then hang on for dear life through the ups and downs. And yeah. I'll give you, I mean, a couple of examples. And to your point, Paul, I think I did, I counted one time. I think I covered 80 companies formally yeah. with research. I did 26 IPOs. And in the process of talking to companies, probably, you know, clearly talked to hundreds of CEOs and management teams. So you, you get yeah. some perspective on time, at least within my narrow little space of small and mid-cap medtech growth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't pretend to be an expert in any other space than that. I'm really good in that little space. And so, of course, I took that to a company like Intuitive, which is arguably a large-cap, fast-growth yeah. company. But this concept of finding that wave, the surfboard, and hanging on for dear life is the most important thing. And I had a high school physics teacher named Mr. Prez, who was one of the people that set me on the path that I ended up on. We'd walk in every day to class, and he would start the meeting out, the day out, and he would say, any questions about anything? Hmm. And I was that front row seat guy, right? Yeah. And so every day I came in and I had a question, whether it was geopolitics, whether it was chemistry, whether whatever. And I made sure we spent the first 15 minutes of every class talking about anything other than the material at hand. But as we got to spend time talking back and forth, one of the things he said is most people are going to tell you, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And he says, I'm here to tell you to put all your eggs in one basket and then watch your basket. And so that's kind of another flavor of what I just said about the surfboard. Yeah. And as you, as you look at the things that have become runaway successes, yep. they have had that tailwind. They've had that market opportunity that is just at a different scale. Yep. And as an analyst, my job at William Blair was not to hit singles and doubles. I was trying to hit grand slams. It's like yeah. the modern day, you know, baseball up until this year. Everybody's <laughs> just trying to hit home runs all the yeah. time. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, I think I think that's one of the bigger mistakes people make. Um, if you're really trying to have an impact, you got to take a big swing. You know, there's, there's one and a half million type one diabetics in the United States, and there's a couple million insulin using type twos that are poking their finger every day, right? And the yeah. best type ones are doing it ten times a day. And it doesn't give you a trend. It doesn't give you speed of change, you know, rate of change. It just simply gives you a data point. Yeah. And you're the patient. You're supposed to take that limited data set and then figure out how to keep yourself from either going into, you know, hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. And all evidence is the fact that most people don't do that very well. And so you do have a lot of hospitalization and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Another little data point for you, data is probably 10 years old now, but the average type 1 diabetic costs an insurance company $25,000 a year. That's probably more now. Yeah. And so you sit there and say, okay, I got finger sticks, I got injectable insulin, and not a lot of other resources, and this is a patient-directed treatment. Yeah. So maybe continuous glucose monitoring is a pretty good idea. And in the early days, we thought it was going to be applicable for type 1 diabetics. 
turns out the technology here is really hard and only mm. two companies have actually cracked it with with compelling products so anyways we initially thought it was one and a half million type ones in the united states million and a half roughly type ones in europe so you're talking a 10 billion dollar market at average yep. selling prices and you say mm. wait a minute turns out there's a whole bunch of insulin using type twos that probably would benefit from it and they did the clinical work and then oh by the way there's some non-insulin using type two diabetics. And by the way, there's people with prediabetes called metabolic disorder that are going down the path that maybe we should yep. inform them about their habits and what it's doing to their glucose. Yep. So all of a sudden you start doing the math on that. The 10 billion goes to 20 billion, goes to 50 billion, goes to a hundred billion. And so now you're looking at a hundred billion dollar, roughly global market mm -hmm. that is out there for the companies, get two companies doing it. And all of a sudden, you know, Dexcom's market cap is whatever, $30 billion up from 150 million the last time we did a fundraising for them back in whatever, 2010. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to succeed and you know, with singles and doubles. And I'm not taking anything away from those strategies and those entrepreneurs pushing down those paths. Yeah. But my strategy has always been to take big swings mm -hmm. and to look for those open-ended tsunami-like forces that are unstoppable. And CGM is so much better for the patient yeah. and it informs so many different elements of patient care that it was inevitable that it was going to take over. That's come up in a number of our conversations is your way of looking at there's a wave emerging and then there's two other patterns I noticed that you're good at spotting. There's either one or two people on that wave and that's not going to last forever or there's a ton of people. But at some point, a wave tends to carry three to five big players. So you have to believe that if one person's got it figured out, that means somebody has got it figured out and there's probably a share to pull from there or a bunch of people have got it figured out, but nobody's mastered it. But those are interesting kind of data cues that you can read off of. Yeah. The very first industry I covered in my career as a cell site analyst was actually cardiac rhythm management hmm. within um, the cardiology space. So pacemakers and ICDs Yeah, and Medtronic had innovated the pacemaker space back in the forties or fifties. And, and basically the, 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 the business developed and they grew north of 15% yeah. for like 20 years or something. Wow. It's just a runaway success. Yeah, And then in the mid nineties, um, some technology that had been invented, you know, seven or 10 years ago, uh, prior to that, uh, for implantable cardioverter defibrillators for patients who have ventricular arrhythmias, they were coming through uh, Guidant and then Medtronic jumped in and then St. Jude Medical jumped right. in. So you suddenly had three large players and a handful of other little ankle biters, Biotronic and somebody else. Yeah. But the three big guys had 90% of the market right. and it stayed that way for a long time, maybe still mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Uh, but that market grew north of 15, it grew between 15 and 40% for 15 years. Right. So yeah. think about that because of the, the unmet clinical need and then the clinical evidence that they developed in support of their products and the impact on both the quad aim and specifically on patient outcomes. Um, so I think, you know, that that was mm -hmm. the first space I looked at. And it kind of led to this rule of mine that these good markets will normally support three players. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're also highlighting, which is around your home runs aspect. I was talking to somebody recently about Matt Higgins book, burn the boats, which is just commit, like pretend you can't go back and just go all in because the way you problem solve around, there's no plan B is different when you can say, Oh, I can give up anytime. And the other piece that keeps coming up is I think mainly because we live in uh, a culture of sports is we tend to look at win loss ratios and that's not a stat. It's just absolute wins. If you get three or four big home runs, that's the game. 
the ratio of losses or the number of losses are going way back to your woodworking examples of like the blemishes means nothing. It's, it's the, the absolute number of home runs is the mm-hmm. game. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the history and turns out business books are typically when you're written by the winners. Yeah. You know, most point. people don't write books saying about, oh, this is how I, 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 you know, manage this business into a pile of, you know, yeah. stuff in the corner. I mean, sometimes they'll throw that in as an anecdote and, and there's some really good lessons there for sure. But, uh, you know, back to my personal philosophy, it's, it's to go after the bigger targets and, it's as much about the impact you can have when you do have success, not just on your personal PL, but on society, on the world, on patients in my chosen profession within the healthcare space. Yeah. It really is about driving the quad aim for the hospitals because it's one. And I watched this over and over as an yeah. analyst where a company would develop a super innovative product, but they wouldn't do the market access work. They wouldn't do yeah. the reimbursement. They wouldn't yes. do the, the regulatory stuff as cleanly as they could. They wouldn't develop the clinical evidence. And this to me is my big bugaboo is clinical evidence to prove definitively that their product does what they say it does. So that was the plague of the medtech (laughs) industry for most of the players, including many of the smaller and mid-sized companies, not the big companies. They've always done it well. Yeah. I've had countless conversations going, is healthcare innovation harder because of like FDA things? And I've had countless leaders going, all the FDA asks is that your product does what you say it does. That's all it is. And and I think that goes to your point. Like sometimes it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. We just want your products to work. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, early in my career as a naive young person, arrogant, whatever, um, I thought of Medicare and, and the FDA as the enemy. Yeah. Because they were between my companies and their ability to be successful. And I came to appreciate many, many years ago yeah. how passionately the people working in those jobs are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Nobody's sitting there Machiavellian and say, I'm going to get in the way of this innovation. They're just saying, just show me that it does what you said it does. Let's yeah. be intellectually honest and just prove it. Yeah. And I'm even going to set the bar relatively low for you to get it into the marketplace because it looks like a safe product. But please still prove to me that it does consistently what you say it's going to do. Awesome. Awesome. Great advice. Well, Ben, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for carving out a little bit of your day to, to share it with us. And uh, thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Hopefully I didn't do too many long stories. I'm also well known for that. No worries. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to Profits Healthcare Transformers podcast. This podcast is produced by Jared Johnson and his wonderful team at Shift Forward Health. And a big thank you to our hosts, Priya and Asia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. If you like today's episode, you can find more great content like this at profit.com slash thinking. I'm Anna Kuno, the senior editor of this podcast. Thank you for listening.